If you have happened to have missed our series so far, you can catch up with it online through YouTube or through one of our podcasts. You'll find that on Apple Music or in Spotify. And so we have been working our way slowly through Ephesians, and tonight Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1 through 13. This is God's Word to us. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am, sorry, the page is crinkled. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us this evening. The grass willers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Well, we're going to respond to God again as we have heard from His Word. We're going to sing together, what is our hope in life and death. Well, do let's uh, turn together to Ephesians chapter 3, those verses that we read earlier. Not all that long ago, I, I found myself chatting to my mother about her experiences in school. She went to Down High uh, in Downpatrick uh, after the war, and uh, I asked her how she ended up in teaching. She was a primary school teacher. And she told me that the principal had brought her into the office and said, well, Anne, it's either nursing, civil service, or teaching. Which one do you want? Now, those of you who are involved in giving careers advice, uh, either formally or informally today, may note that there are a few more options than that for most people today. Uh, maybe even some that cause you to raise an eyebrow. Uh, perhaps if uh, you've had someone say to you that, when they grow up, they want to be an influencer. 
Uh, maybe indeed that's what some of you have set your heart upon. You are carefully building your platform and you're growing your followers. And, and whether you think of it in this way or not, you're, you're actually setting yourself up as an example for people to follow. Well, you may think that you're doing something tremendously new and cutting edge, but you are, I think, a little bit late to the game because we in the Christian church have uh, not found the idea of following someone's example uh, an unusual thing. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, remember your leaders who spoke the Word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Paul, in, in several places, is very happy to have people follow his example, imitate him. First Corinthians 1.11, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Famously in Philippians 4 verse 9, he says, whatever you have heard, uh, sorry, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, we may not particularly like the idea of thinking of Paul as an influencer. I'm not sure he would have liked it very much either. Uh, but we are at least going to look at his example this evening. And we're going to do that uh, from this passage because here in this passage we get a, an insight how in particular he related to the gospel, to the good news. We, what is the gospel? We, we need to just really have lots of ways of thinking of the gospel all of the time. Whenever we use this word that we're so familiar with. What's the gospel? It is that though we are rebels and have rebelled against God, face His judgment, God has done for us in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. Christ has paid our debt. Christ brings us into the family of God, and He gives us a prospect of being with Him in glory forever. Fantastically good news. And Paul has been just captivated by this gospel and indeed, in this passage, he calls himself a servant of the gospel, and we want to see what he means by that. Now, now, before we jump into that, let's just say a little bit about how this passage relates to everything else in Ephesians, because we're trying to sort of get an overview of this book, and in some ways, to look at Paul is to slightly sidestep some of the, the thrust of, of what's going on in this passage, so we want to be familiar with it. This part of the Bible deals with the bringing together of Jew and Gentile, more than perhaps anywhere else in the Bible. We, we saw last time, as we looked at the second half of chapter 2, uh, that the NIV entitles One in Christ, we saw how Paul says in verse 15 that the purpose of Jesus was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both to God through the cross by which to He put to death their hostility. So, Jews and Gentiles, that was the, the huge division in the world at that time, Jews and Gentiles able to be reconciled to God through the cross and to each other. And at the beginning of chapter 3, it looks as if Paul's going to move on from that and pray for the church in Ephesus, but what happens is he breaks off and he delves back into that subject. You can see that that happens here. You see in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he, he says, um, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and it looks as if he's about to pray, and then there's a dash, you see, at the end of verse 1, almost as if it's in brackets, and then he returns to it in verse 14, for this reason he comes back to it. So, he's slightly distracted. He, he says, I've got more to say about this subject, and he jumps back into it. And here he talks about the coming together of Jew and Gentile, and he speaks of it as a mystery. 
Now, that word mystery is very important. We have a particular idea of what a mystery is. It occurs three times verses, in verses 2 to 6. A mystery for us is something that maybe can't be explained or can't be understood fully. We talk about a murder mystery, for example. But in the Bible, the idea of a mystery is different. A, a, a biblical mystery is something that cannot be known by ourselves, but God reveals it to us. So, so it's a truth beyond human discovery. So it's not a secret now because God has revealed it. And you see, in verse 6, Paul tells us what this mystery is. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. What, what God has made known, this mystery that we could never have worked out by ourselves, is that He is forming new people made up of Gentiles and Jews who share in Christ together, this new humanity, as we saw last time. And Paul's just amazed at what God is doing, and uh, we're going to, to, in a sense, see how, how this has captivated Paul himself, and look particularly at his example. And there are several things that we see as far as his, as his relationship uh, to the gospel is concerned. First of all, we see that he has been humbled by the gospel. That's the first thing, humbled by the gospel. See what he says in verses 7 and 8. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. How does Paul see himself? He is the, perhaps the foremost uh, Christian leader of his generation. Uh, he sees himself as the least of God's people. And that's not false modesty on his part. He believed that in 1 Timothy 1. He says, here's a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So there's a sense, you see, in which Paul knew because he had persecuted the church, he was dreadfully undeserving in a sense, because he'd acted against Christ and his church so clearly. He was undeserving of mercy. But there's another sense in which Paul had come to experience something that every real believer discovers, and that is that they are humbled by the gospel. They, they, they feel their unworthiness. Remember, this was Paul. He used to parade before God all his righteousness. Remember his, his, his pedigree, Hebrew of Hebrews, his, his achievements, all of those things. And he moves from this position of boasting to this position where he says, I'm the least of God's people. The gospel has humbled him, you see. And it's a really necessary step in conversion. It's an indication of true conversion. A, a number of years ago, many years ago, I remember being with an individual who was uh, heavily involved in the church down through his life. He had served in various areas of the church's life. And yet, all he was interested in talking about were, were his achievements and his awards. He, he took me around the walls of his, his study and showed me the certificate for this and for that and for that and this award that he'd got and so on. And he had been hugely awarded. But there was not the slightest sense from him that he was just amazed that the grace of God had reached for me. You know that, that we sing? I have no way of knowing whether he was truly converted or not. Only God knows that. But it's difficult to square the sorts of things that he was saying with what we see of Paul here. I'm the least of all God's people. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that one of the ways to check if a person was a genuine Christian, or at least to get an idea, was to, to ask, if, ask them if they were a Christian, and if they were offended at the question, then it was a sign that they'd never been humbled by the gospel, and possibly were not really converted. But, but, but if they laughed, it was a really good sign. If they say, oh, yeah, that's a, amazingly, I am. I, God has saved me. It's It's incredible. And the least of all God's people. It's a necessary step in conversion. It's a continuing requirement for Christian living, isn't it? Wow, the gospel has gripped me. God has reached for me. I've been humbled by the gospel. Paul had just been made little by the news that Jesus had done for him what he couldn't do for himself. He was humbled. He, he was then thrilled by the gospel. You see that <clears throat> in a number of different ways. It has really got a grip off him. And we see some of the things that have really grabbed him here about the gospel. First of all, we see that he is, is thrilled because of its value. You see how he describes it there? The unsearchable riches of Christ. It's a really difficult word to, to translate uh, because there's no English word that really captures it all. Uh, we could go for something like unsearchable or inexplorable or untraceable or unfathomable or inexhaustible or inscrutable or incalculable. You know, get the idea. There's no limit to how valuable the gospel is because it tells us about the riches of Christ that are beyond measure. And what this means is that Christ, as He comes into a life, never impoverishes someone's life. He always enriches their lives. And yet, that's, that's against the, the way that, that Christians are thought of, isn't it? So often here within the West, uh, people think that, that Christ impoverishes a person. He takes away something from their life. You know, you say to someone, why is it that you, you're not yet a Christian? They say, well, you know, I, I, I feel it's got so many things to do, and, and maybe whenever I'm just about to, to you know, my life's about over, and, and I, I'm I really have nothing more to do. Then I become a Christian, like sort of not paying your fire insurance until you smell the smoke, which is a really bad idea. Lots of people think like that, don't they? That Christ impoverishes a person. But here, we see He enriches our lives. And, and Christians don't doubt that. We know that He enriches our lives. But sometimes, practically, we live as if that's not the case. I wonder, do we really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ enriches a life? Do we really believe that the very best thing that our neighbors can find is Jesus? Do we really believe that that's what enriches them? They may have everything going for them, but they are poor until they find the riches of Christ. What about our children? Sometimes Christian parents speak about their children uh, who are doing well, and they're so proud of their achievements and so on, and that's right that we are, and yet we, we don't communicate to our children sometimes that there are spiritual treasures that really need to be grasped. We communicate this to them in, in all sorts of ways, don't we? We, we sort of we really push them at school, for example, and then we say, well, you know, do you want to go to church today? It's a beautiful evening. And the barbecue's on. You can have another burger. Are we communicating to our children that, that Christ will enrich their lives above everything else? Paul knew that Christ, 
the gospel enriches people. John Stott says this, once we are sure that the Bible is both true from God and rich, sorry, let me say that again. Once we are sure that the Bible is both truth from God and riches from, for mankind, nobody will be able to silence us. Now, we, we sometimes want to keep our heads down, and, and according to John Stott here, it's because either we're not absolutely convinced of its truth, or we're not absolutely convinced of its value. Are we convinced of its value? Paul was convinced of its value. He, he was also sure that it was enlightening. He, he was thrilled with the gospel because he saw that it was enlightening. You see verse 9 from verse 8, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Make plain there in verse 9 is, is not the same word as preach back in verse 18. It's, it's a, a Greek word, fotizo. It, it's, it's the word from which we get photograph and, and, and photosensitive and all of those things. It, it means light. And Paul is saying that the gospel brings light. It's enlightening. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When a person becomes a Christian, it's, that, it's, it's because God has switched on the lights in the gloominess of their hearts. And Paul knew that, didn't he? Remember, on the Damascus road, he, he sees the light on the Damascus Road. As he shares that story three times through Acts, the light in his telling gets brighter and brighter because he's clear that, that God has illuminated his heart. And you see, this is the truth, isn't it? That we are in darkness until Christ shines his light into our hearts. People, before they are Christians, say things, <clears throat> and it's clear that, that, that even the truth of the gospel just makes no sense They'll maybe say, I, I just don't see it, because the prince of this world has blinded their minds, made them love darkness rather than light. And, and what is the, the hope to that, the antidote to that? Well, it is the, the fatizo, it's the gospel bringing light. Paul is, is thrilled by this. It opens eyes. He preaches Christ, God opens eyes. And so the people say as he does that, I see it now. The darkness is gone. It's clear. He's, he's thrilled with the gospel because, because it, it, it brings light. And, and he's thrilled with the, God, the, the gospel because it is, it is cosmic. He, this is maybe a new thought for us. It, it is uh, maybe for me a little bit. It, it has an effect beyond this world, not something that we often think about. But you see verse 10, it tells us what God is doing. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, what's this saying? God is displaying His wisdom through the church to someone. Who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, who's that? We're not told much about the heavenly beings. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't say much about the angels particularly. But when it does, we get an insight into this spiritual world alongside our world, unseen by us, but, and here's the thing, seeing us. Remember, 
Elisha and his servant at Dothan, and the servant is terrified because they're surrounded by enemies, and Elisha prays that God will open his servant's eyes, and suddenly he sees the heavenly host in the hills around where they are. And the point is not that they've just shown up. It's that they've always been there. And God is showing His wisdom to these angels as they watch the church grow and develop by the gospel. Maybe you're into these, you know, medical dramas, uh, TV medical dramas, and, and, and you, you'll maybe then see that in some of the teaching hospitals in America, I'm not sure they do that here particularly, they, they have these operating theaters, and they are sort of a story and a half, and, and, and up in the the, the higher part of the operating theater, there are windows, and, and all the medical students gather around, and they're looking at you when you're insides or you're outside, you know? It's not very nice. And, and they're, they're, they're saying, you know, well, tomorrow I'll be doing one of these, so better, better work that out. And, and, and God, as it were, ushers the angels into the gallery and he says, look, look and learn. Look, look and see what's happening in the church. See my wisdom in the church. You see, there are things that the angels are learning by seeing. Now, I don't think we think about this too often, but the church is, John Stott is brilliant on this. He, he calls the, the church a graduate school for angels. They watch and learn. Now, what specifically do they see? They see the manifold wisdom of God. It's a word that speaks of something that is multicolored. It was used of Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat. And what's this passage speaking about? It's talking about God bringing together people from opposite backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, and making one new people under Him. And so, the thing well, one of the things, at least, that teaches the angels about God's wisdom is the ability of the gospel to bring people multicolored and make them one. Diversity is such a buzzword at the moment, isn't it? But, but here's God's diversity, people from all sorts of backgrounds, but united at the cross. John Stott says this. Let me read this. So then, as the gospel strips as the gospel spreads throughout the world, this new and variegated Christian community develops. It's as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and the church members in every land are the actors. God Himself has written the play, and He directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, we are to think of them as spectators in the drama of salvation. This is the history of the Christian church. Sorry, thus the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. It's a question for us, isn't it? If this is the case, if, if the way that God is able to bring people together from different backgrounds and make them one is teaching the angels something about the wisdom of God, if that's the case, we're not from hugely different backgrounds, most of us. But that being the case, how are we doing in saying something to the angels? Because our unity or our lack of it says something. We're on the cosmic stage. How are we with each other? We're like a PowerPoint presentation to the heavenly beings. The church is sending out a message to the cosmos. And you see, Paul has been gripped by this, and he's just thrilled by it. He's thrilled by it. 
thrilled by the gospel. He's also suffering for the gospel. That's the next thing. He's suffering for the gospel. Remember, he's in prison for this message as he writes. Verse 1, you see, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And, and what had happened was that he had been in Jerusalem and he'd taken a, a, a Greek person called Trophimus uh, uh, into the, the temple and uh, he was wrongly assumed that he'd taken him further into the temple than he should have, into the temple courts, which was forbidden, and there'd been a riot, and uh, he had begun to speak to the crowd, and everything was going okay until in his story, he says in Acts 22, then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So it was because of the Gentiles that he was then arrested. He appealed to Caesar. He was taken to Rome and so on. So he really was in bother and in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. It was because of his going to the Gentiles that he was now in jail. And so he says to them in 3.13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So Paul was suffering for the gospel and for the Gentiles. And why do you think God allowed that to happen? Don't you sometimes wonder, what, what a waste Paul could have been such an effective ministry, minister and, and missionary. Why didn't he make it to, to 95 years old and hobbling around the Middle East on his cane and, 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 and speaking to people and planting churches? Why did, he, why did God do that? How, how could we possibly know the answer to that? Well, well, James Montgomery Boyce says something that I think is super helpful when these sorts of questions come up. He imagines God speaking like this. God says, as Boyce imagines him, I have already determined to create a race called man. And I know in advance, because I know all things, that Satan will seduce him from my righteousness and plunge him into misery. Satan will think that he is one. But while Satan is doing that, turning the human race against me and setting individual human beings against one another and even against themselves, I will begin to create a new people who will bring, who will glory in doing what is right, even when it's not popular, and who will delight in pleasing me, even when they suffer for it. Satan will say, your people only serve you to, because you protect them, only because you can provide for them materially. But here and there, and in a great variety of ways, I will allow them to be greatly abused and persecuted. And I will show by their reactions that not only will they continue to praise me in their suffering and thus bring glory to my name, but they, that, that they will be even happier in their sufferings than Satan's people are with their maximum share of human prestige and possessions. Has the gospel gripped us enough that we are happy, happier even in our sufferings than for the most well-off and privileged Christless person? For that is what it had done to Paul. He was suffering for the gospel. And the last thing is he was emboldened by the gospel. <clears throat> you see what he says in verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. This is, this is part of the reason that he's able to uh, explain why he, he is able to suffer for the gospel. How is he able to do it? How is he able to face another day knowing that every day might bring difficulty or a conflict or even death? Because he has access to the Father. He has acceptance and freedom 
and confidence with him. You know that so many people in our world who are thinking of relating to God in a religious way are waiting for a final verdict. They're waiting to show up, as it were, at the gates of heaven and to answer the question or to hear the answer to the question, have I done enough? Is there acceptance for me? But Paul knew that he had acceptance already, that the verdict over his life had already been given. That is the great gospel hope, isn't it? Not because of him, but because of Christ. Not because of his missionary efforts, but because of Christ. Not because of our best works, but because of Christ. And so, you see, because of that, he has absolute confidence. He knows he has acceptance with God. The verdict that really matters has been given. And he knows, by the way, that his life is also under Christ's rule. He's writing this in prison. He's waiting to see Nero, not just any old emperor, but Nero. He's Nero's prisoner. And yet, that's not what he says. He says in verse 1, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Jesus has me here. Oh, oh, Nero's guys have got the keys, but Jesus has me here. It's not the way I would choose it, perhaps, but Jesus has me here. This is what the gospel does, isn't it? It gives us confidence because He rules our lives, and He has given us a verdict over our lives before we see Him. So, He's humbled by the gospel, thrilled by the gospel. He suffers for the gospel. He is made bold by the gospel, and all this leads him to say, I'm a servant of the gospel. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. He's just amazed, isn't it? You can feel it here. He's, he's just, why me? Why me? He's found that God has poured into his life, and now he's just pouring out his life because he knows that what God has done for him is wonderful, and what God can do for the next person he meets can be wonderful too. And I guess we've got to ask ourselves, as we see Paul's example, as he is perhaps that influencer for us, and we, we look at him and we say, do you know what? I would like to be like him. I, I would like to live like him. Well, how, how do we live like him? The gospel needs to grip us like it gripped him. Not that we might take the gospel all over the world, perhaps. Maybe we will. But we might take it across the street or across the corridor or across the desk. John Stott, once we are sure that the Bible is both truth from God and riches for mankind, no one will be able to silence us. Well, let's pray for a moment. Lord, it is just humbling to get an insight into the heart, mindset, passion of Your servant, the Apostle Paul. We thank You, O Lord, that You saved him, that You brought him to Yourself. You gave him such a desire to serve you, and indeed, in some ways, perhaps we are here partly because of his response to your work in his life. So, Lord, we 
We thank you for him. But Lord, we pray that more than see him, we might see what you have done in him. And we might long for that ourselves. That the gospel might thrill us. That, that it's, its wonder might capture us. And therefore, that it might make us bold and help us to take it wherever we are. And Lord, if some of us have not yet understood or responded to the gospel, by your power, turn on the lights and work, we pray, in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.